0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Poem Peeps. We have a lot of exciting new features coming out, including some new educational content coming out this summer. So make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and check out our website. Furf, how's it going?
1: It's going really well. I'm very excited for a couple of new things we have coming up. So stay tuned. Today, we're just super excited to be back with one of our standard episodes, one of our Poem Peeps Case Files.
0: Totally, Ferf. And so excited to be back in the Northeast and virtually visiting Boston University.
1: So first, we have Lauren Carney. Lauren is a research fellow at Boston University. She's been at BU for six years, completing her internal medicine residency and chief residency there. She's pursuing a research career in health equity and community-based participatory research to improve outcomes for patients with lung cancer and other pulmonary conditions. Lauren, welcome to Pulm Peeps.
2: Thanks so much for having us today. Yeah, I was so excited,
0: Lauren, to hear about this case and hear about Boston University. You're going to be joined today by Dr. Chris Reardon, who's a clinical professor of medicine at Boston University, where she is also the fellowship training program director for pulmonary and critical care medicine. In addition to that, Chris, I'm not sure how you find the time, but you're also the director of the respiratory care services at Pappas Rehab University for Children. It's an honor to have you on today, Chris. Welcome to Palm Peeps.
3: Thank you. It's really great to be part of your podcast. I listen to it on my commute.
1: Thanks for listening. It's the right time to be doing it. Absorb a little bit of good audio content on the way to work. Same thing I do. (laughs) Uh, Finally, we have Katie Styling. (laughs) Katie is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston University and a member of the Bioinformatics Graduate Program. She founded the Lung Nodule Clinic at Boston Medical Center and co-chairs the Lung Cancer Screening Steering Committee. She is dedicated to improving the equitable treatment of patients with and at risk for lung cancer, which is an unbelievable pursuit. Thanks for coming on the show today, Katie.
4: Thanks for enjoy- inviting me to join you. I'm really happy to be here.
1: Awesome. We are very excited to dive in, but before we do, as always, just a reminder, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice, and just the views we express today do not necessarily affect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case we present today is HIPAA compliant, and some details may have been changed or hidden to protect the privacy of our patient.
0: Thanks, Ferf. Excited to get started with the case. So Lauren, I'm wondering if you could tell us about the patient that you met.
2: Definitely. So today we'll be talking about a 44-year-old male who reports current tobacco use. He is also experiencing homelessness and has been staying at a shelter. He presents with three days of pleuritic chest pain and a cough productive of blood-tinged sputum. This was preceded by about one to two months of fatigue and decreased appetite, and more recently, two weeks of bilateral calf swelling.
1: All right. So even right there, we have so much to talk about already. You know, the blood to sputum versus hemoptysis question com- comes up quite a bit, and I think it's a really important history-taking detail. So just to hone in on that, we've done tons of episodes on hemoptysis. We encourage you guys to take a listen. But there, we were really talking about massive hemoptysis versus non-massive or non-life-threatening. Whereas blood-tinged sputum, while it has the same flavor, makes me think a little bit differently about what's happening with the patient. So the way I like to distinguish it is ask patients if they're ever bringing up just blood. And if they are, you go down the algorithm that we talked about in those hemoptysis episodes. Is it dark? Is it bright red? Does it have clots in it? How much? Teaspoon, tablespoon, half a cup. If they're talking about coughing and its blood tinge, I often ask if there are flecks of sputum within there. Do they ever cough first and bring up some sputum that doesn't have blood in it, and then it finally gets some blood? Thinking about upper airway irritation. And it makes me think a little bit more about a process that's not necessarily related to their vasculature, but actually something going on with their pulmonary epithelium and lining. So just a a few pearls that I like to think about with that. And then additionally, we're talking about the time course. It doesn't sound like this is all brand new. And so if I have somebody who has symptoms for a few months and then a development a couple weeks ago and then a couple days going on, I definitely want to try to get to an all-encompassing diagnosis as opposed to just saying this is maybe a community-acquired pneumonia for two days and then moving forward from there. But I wanted to hone in on two pieces of history a little bit more that certainly can influence our diagnostic reasoning. So you mentioned that the patient was smoking and that he was undomiciled. And so I I think active smoking in a younger patient like this can be a little bit different than when we think about a patient who has smoked 100 pack years and we're very much into an emphasis framework. So it's helpful to think about the associated conditions with active smoking. And certainly a patient who's undomiciled or living in shelters may be at risk for different diseases than patients who are not. So Chris, any special things you think about when considering the portions of these history for the patient?
3: Yeah, Dave, when I have a young person who smokes heavily, you do think about, was this a chronic bronchitis patient? Could it be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. But then as pulmonologists, we like to try and think of the more rare things that we have to consider in our differential diagnosis. So one condition that I would consider would be Langerhans cell histiocytosis, which is a smoking associated disease and can occur in younger people such as our patient. And one of the symptoms can include pleuritic chest pain as this patient was experiencing. I also would think about respiratory bronchiolitis and somebody who's smoking is a potential diagnosis of somebody presenting with dyspnea and cough, perhaps some blood tinged sputum. And then, probably the other one that I might consider smoking would be acute eosinophilic pneumonia, in which a patient may present as a new smoker or perhaps they have a change in their smoking habits. And this is also a condition that's seen in young people. So, I think those would be pulmonary conditions that I would add on to the typical, is this someone with chronic bronchitis, acute bronchitis, pneumonia? Is this a COPD patient? And then the other aspect of the case that you asked me about was the the patient who is experiencing homelessness and what risks that that might entail in terms of their clinical presentation. And I think we always have to consider the possibility that someone might be exposed to tuberculosis or other mycobacterial infections when living in close quarters with other people the other things to think about would be, why is this person homeless and not currently having their own place? And was this a mental health issue? Is this a substance use problem and that the associated risk with substance use? Could they have HIV infection? And then also, where, do, where are they from? Are they newly arrived to the country? So the countries that they have come from, the endemic infections perhaps, that they might be bringing with them from their home countries, and then some of our patients who are living in shelters are still working. So I think we still have to pursue occupational history in our questioning of our patients because they live in the shelter, but go to work and they might have some exposure that might be causing some injury to their lungs. Yeah. And the last thing I would say, sorry to keep going on, but I think the impact of our diagnostic evaluation and treatment plans. If someone's living in a shelter or not, so particularly for tuberculosis, if that's in our differential diagnosis, he, that patient is not going to be allowed back into the shelter until that's ruled out just for the public health in respect to the other residents in the shelters.
1: Yeah, absolutely. No apologies necessary. We want to hear all of this. That's great. And I think those are great considerations about not forgetting other parts of your social history once you're ho- hone in on that about their occupational lung disease and then thinking about the public health implications, not only of their living situation, but of our diagnostic considerations. That, that's awesome. Okay, Lauren, can you tell us a little bit more about things you learned after meeting this patient?
2: Yeah, getting a little bit more into his physical exam. He's afebrile. He does have an elevated respiratory rate of 28. He's tachycardic with a heart rate of 105. Blood pressure is normal. And he is saturating 98% on room air. But he appears pretty uncomfortable, especially when you ask him to take a deep breath. It's very clear that he's in pain. And he has pretty dry mucous membranes. His cardiac exam is notable for the tachycardia, but he does have a regular rhythm. In an auscultation, we noted a right pleural rub, and he has crackles at his bilateral bases. His abdomen's soft and non-distended, and despite his report of the lower extremity edema, that's not really appreciated on exam. There's also no joint swelling, no rashes, and his hands, which is a big piece of the physical exam that I've learned since starting fellowship, do not show any clubbing, no discoloration of his nails. Or any other notable findings.
0: Thanks so much, Lauren, and such a great physical exam that you're able to share with us. And totally agree. I think in addition to looking at the patient, the hands is one of the first things that I go to now. So glad that you shared that with us. And some definitely some notable things that you pointed out. But the plural rub, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. So I think this is often an underrecognized clinical finding. And while we know it has low sensitivity. Sorry, we know it has low sensitivity for most conditions. Its presence can definitely guide your thinking. And one thing that I like to teach when we hear a pleural rub is that it's important to make sure you're not hearing a pericardial rub, right? And this is done really easily by just seeing if it goes away when the patient holds their breath. A pleural rub requires lung sliding, so it should be gone when the patient is still. And in addition to the physical exam findings that you mentioned, Katie, I'm wondering if there's anything that a pleural rub
4: on exam makes you think about. Yes, let's definitely talk about pleural rubs. So, to me, living in New England, a pleural rub kind of sounds like when you take your first footsteps on really fresh snow.
1: Oh, nice. I like that.
4: <laughs> Thank you. And so, what it really indicates is it's the sound of the rough or inflamed visceral and parietal pleural rubbing against each other. And so, it always indicates the presence of pleural <laughs> disease. And the differential for that is really broad. So, a pleural rub will make me think of things like pneumonia, maybe pleuritis makes me think of pulmonary embolism. But the reality is with diagnoses like that on the differential, what you really need is to get some additional imaging to see what's going on.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much, Katie. And as you mentioned, we have a concerning presentation in this gentleman who has a pleural rub and the other findings that Lauren mentioned. So Lauren, why don't you tell us what further labs and diagnostic imaging the patient had?
2: Yes, so his labs were notable for elevated platelets to five nine one, but otherwise a normal CBC. He had a normal chemistry. His albumin was low Uh-oh. at three point one, but otherwise normal LFTs. Cardiac enzymes were also normal. Because of just his overall presentation, we did get some inflammatory markers, which were quite elevated, with a CRP of one fifty three and an ESR above our assay of one thirty. He did have a normal procalcitonin. As Katie mentioned, imaging was definitely important to get for this patient, so he underwent a CTPA that had a number of different findings. So first, he had multiple segmental and subsegmental PEs bilaterally with quite a lot of clot burden. He also was noted to have underlying emphysema. He had really prominent mediastinal and lymphadenopathy and a 1.4-centimeter posterior left lower lobe opacity with a moderate right pleural effusion. He then underwent lower extremity Dopplers, which showed bilateral DVTs, and his echocardiogram showed a normal EF, and he had no right heart strain.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Lauren. A lot going on right now with this editing, and a bunch of things for us to work through. I want to talk briefly about sort of wrist stratification in PE and seeing this much thrombus in a patient. We'll have a future episode coming up on acute PE and how we think about it. The big buckets are massive PE, where a patient is hemodynamically unstable, submassive PE, or what now is more referenced as a high-risk or intermediate to high-risk PE, where the patient is hemodynamically stable for the time being, but has some signs on biomarkers, imaging, or ECG of right heart strain, making you think that they're at risk for decompensation. And then everything else gets lumped into this low-risk PE category. And I just really like the learning point that the amount of clot, while it can be very scary, really doesn't help you in that distinguishment that much because different patients have different capacitance of their pulmonary vasculature. So this patient's very young. He can probably tolerate this clot or it seems like he can, given that he's hemodynamically stable. He doesn't have evidence of right heart strain on his echo. He didn't have elevated cardiac biomarkers. But a patient with emphysema, like he also has, could have lower capacitance and even small PEs could influence them. So it's just such a great time where your clinical exam is the most important thing, less important than the imaging appearance of it. It is unusual for a patient who's young like this, presumably, and we don't have all the information about what his lifestyle is, but presumably relatively active to have such an extensive clot burden in his lower extremities. And then that is now moved into his pulmonary vasculature. And so a lot of times the question of this comes in about hypercoagulability and if there's further workup. Certainly, he's got inflammatory markers that make us think there's something going on. Lauren, I know you thought about this probably quite a bit with the patient. Can you tell us a little bit more about digging further into clotting risk factors and when you walk down that road?
2: Yeah, I think at uh, BU, like a lot of other fellowships, we help staff our PERT team or our PERT response Mm -hmm. team. And so that risk stratification is definitely one question we always have to answer, but this idea of hypercoagulability often comes up as well, and it always feels a little bit unclear what to do with these patients. But this patient definitely prompted me to think a lot about that. And so it's the question becomes, who do we work up for hypercoagulability right off the bat when it's a first unprovoked PE? Because certainly we don't do that for everyone. But the patients who we should think about this in are young patients, usually less than 45 years old, thrombus in multiple or unusual vascular beds, history of kind of odd things like warfarin-induced skin necrosis or multiple miscarriages, or patients with arterial thrombosis. And so given our patient was young and had these bilateral DVTs along with his PE, we did decide to send the workup up front. And of course, you have to know... Given that this patient now has a thrombus and was already started on heparin, which of these tests can you send that will be accurate and which ones are not going to be very helpful given the clot burden and the heparin drip? So we know that acute thrombus and the heparin therapy will affect uh, like protein S levels, antithrombin and lupus anticoagulant. So those are not going to be accurate. But we did send the prothrombin gene, the factor V Leiden and the protein C, which were all normal. The other thing to always consider in patients like this are age-appropriate cancer screenings. So given this patient's young age, he did not currently qualify for any cancer screenings, but it's always something to think about.
1: Oh, before we go on, I've always, that's great. I've always wondered if it would be worth it in the hospital for patients to like, just take one vial of blood and one vial of urine before you do anything else and just put it aside (laughs) and you discard it in a week. You could just send, oh yes, thank goodness we have that. We can send it for something else. I'm sure cost effectiveness would prevent it, but it was my
3: dream.
0: Thanks, Verf, And Lauren, thank you for going through your thoughtful approach on the hypercoagulability workup and specifically in this patient. And I know that you said when you were reviewing his imaging findings, and we'll definitely post these so that people can see them because you mentioned, in addition to the PE, so many other things that were going on. And Katie, I'm just wondering how you think about approaching a CT in this gentleman with numerous abnormal findings. How do you start piecing things together and coming
4: up with a diagnosis for him? That's a great question. So when I initially look at the imaging for a case, the first thing that I do is try to forget about all of the clinical information and just come up with a differential diagnosis for the imaging findings. And I think that's important to do, to look at the CT scan independent of the clinical history initially, because it helps prevent early closure on a diagnosis. And so Mm -hmm. then after coming up with a differential for the CT findings, then I go back and try to put it together with the clinical history. So for this particular patient, if I'm just considering his CT scan with no clinical history, the first question is, could all of this be related to the pulmonary emboli? I think it's possible that this consolidative nodular opacity on the left could represent a pulmonary infarct, but then he's got the lymphadenopathy. And I wonder, could that be reactive? It's not impossible to have reactive adenopathy with pulmonary emboli, but I think that would be more unusual. And then he also has this pleural effusion on the right. And while pleural effusions can occur with pulmonary emboli, the effusion for him is unilateral and the clots are pretty extensive and bilateral. So then I wonder if it's not all related to pulmonary emboli, what else could be going on? I think in broad categories, things like malignancy, I always consider the possibility of infectious causes. We talked earlier about mycobacterial disease and TB. Those conditions can certainly cause consolidations in lymphadenopathy, but are less commonly associated directly with things like venous thromboembolism. I would also consider things like a variety of inflammatory conditions or whether perhaps a rheumatologic condition might explain this constellation of CT findings. The other thing you mentioned about the CAT scan for this patient is that it had a lot of emphysema on the scan. And I just want to make a plug for the ATS guidelines that recommend alpha-1 antitrypsin testing for all patients with COPD and emphysema. And this is something that our fellows at Boston University are very used to hearing about and sending because of our robust and outstanding alpha-1 center run by Andrew Wilson.
1: That is awesome. Yeah. You do not want to be the fellow who gets to their board pulmonary boards in third year and rem- realizes that you should have been sending alpha one antitrips on all of your emphysema patients and you haven't been. So good plug. I love it. All right. So a lot of things to go on. A lot of things that are on our differential now. And I think we're in the right zone with our category. Lauren, what steps did you guys take first to try to get to the bottom of this?
2: Yeah. a so- we certainly had a very broad differential. We pursued each of these categories of differential, as Katie laid out. So, with the increased inflammatory markers and rheumatologic disorders on the differential, we sent an ANF-CP, A and a double-stranded DNA, rheumatoid factor, ANCA, and complement levels, all of which were normal. The patient was ruled out for tuberculosis, and there was no nothing on his AFB stain. And then given that he had this pleural effusion, it felt like a thoracentesis was the next step. So we drained 600 cc's of cloudy yellow fluid. The pH was 7.59. The LDH was 345. His serum LDH was 432. The protein was 5. Or er, Sorry, let me start that again. The LDH was 345 compared with the serum LDH of 432. The protein was 4.9 compared with the serum protein of 8.4. The cell count was just around 2,500 with a lymphocyte predominance, and the cultures and cytology were negative. So putting it all together, he met all three of Light's criteria and had a, at this point, idiopathic lymphocyte predominant exudative effusion.
0: Thanks, Lauren, for going through that with us. And if anyone needs a review of further pleural fluid analysis, definitely check out our top consult episodes that we had with Mira John and Eileen Lynch on u-pleural effusions. And I've always found these cases a little vexing, where, as you were mentioning, we clearly have an of effusion, but we still don't have a clear cause yet. And I think the cell count here can be really helpful. And often these <coughs> idiopathic or undifferentiated pleural effusions are lymphocyte predominant. So in these cases, I usually think ab- about a few things, and one of the things that jumps out to me at the top of my differential is definitely TB, because the gram stain in cultures can be negative, and even AFB stain can be missed in certain situations. But other things to think about, including inflammatory diseases, such as rheumatoid pleurisy and sarcoid, can have this presentation, although effusions are a little bit rare in both of these conditions. But, Chris, I know you're an expert in this, and I'm so I'm wondering other things that you would want us to consider with the lymphocyte-predominant exudative effusion.
3: Oh, excellent. Yeah, so, Christina, just as Katie pointed out, with a differential, I try and think about the differential for lymphocytic exudative effusion just by itself without the clinical history, and then go back and tie in the clinical history. So, the big laundry list of things. As you pointed out, TB is like a big thing, but other mycobacterial infections potentially Fungal infections, viral infections can cause a lymphocytic effusion. You mentioned rheumatoid arthritis and sarcoid. With the metastinal adenopathy, sarcoid, I think, certainly is on the list. Thinking about post cabbage, this patient didn't have a cabbage yet, yellow nail syndrome, chylothorax potentially, neoplasm, I think that's big on the list. So any kind of malignancy, particularly lung, esophageal, One can have lymphoma or leukemic infiltration that can lead to a lymphocytic effusion. And then of the like fungal infections to think about like histoplasmosis, which can give you a lot of robust mediastinal adenopathy and filariasis potentially is sort of a weird thing. Again, where's this person from? So I think that's what I think about when I have my list and then tie in the clinical history. So for him, you know, I'd be thinking about tuberculosis, perhaps sarcoid. Kylothorax, I don't think his, his, the milky appearance did not seem to be obvious based on the description Lauren just gave us. Malignancy, I think, is still top of the list. Rheumatoid arthritis, I think, is less likely based on the serology testing that came back.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I think anytime we have malignancy on the list too, we always have to think about the tap and how sensitive it's going to be and sending down a lot of fluid for cytology. There's a great paper that looks at at least 150 cc seems to be a good break point. And maybe more than that doesn't help more, but I just bring the whole bag down and let them take a look and sometimes even retap as it goes. My one, exactly. good, Yeah. My one good plug on yellow nail syndrome, I'm glad you mentioned that. I had a co-fellow who was convinced we had one once and it turned out the patient just smoked a lot. And like <laughs> yellow nails and normal pleurofusion. These are just great considerations. We have a lot of things that we're still suspicious of, a lot of concerning things, but we don't have a diagnosis yet. And given the patient's significant presentation, it's really important that we get to one. Lauren, what did you guys do to try to figure this out further?
2: Yeah. So at this point, we were really struggling with next steps and a lot of our discussion really revolved around, could we just blame all of the CT findings on PE or is there something else going on? And no one really felt comfortable saying, oh, this is just PE, send him out and don't do any more workup. So we were starting to pursue more invasive procedures to get pathology, thinking about an EBUS, bus which obviously was complicated in the setting of him being on the anticoagulation. But in the upcoming days, he started to ve- develop this left lateral neck pain, And on reexamination, he actually had pretty bulky lymphadenopathy in the left and right neck and the supraclavicular regions. So this prompted us to get a CT neck, which showed extensive supraclavicular lymph nodes, and IR was able to perform a percutaneous biopsy, which ultimately got us our diagnosis of metastatic poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma, carcinoma, which was most compatible with the lung primary. I will say to your point about the sensitivity of the uh, pleural effusion for malignancy, about two weeks after his initial diagnosis, he reaccumulated enough fluid to be symptomatic. And so another tap was performed. And at that time, the pleural fluid now was positive for malignancy, also compatible with this metastatic adenocarcinoma.
0: Well, thanks, Lauren, and and such an unfortunate kind of outcome, I think, in such a young patient as you're presenting today. I know that we have a diagnosis, though, now, but Lauren, can you walk us through the next steps that we should be thinking of when we have a patient with a new diagnosis of late stage lung cancer, such as your patient today?
2: Absolutely. So now we have a diagnosis of malignancy, which unfortunately appears to be pretty aggressive and advanced at this stage. So, the focus really turned to further staging and determination of what the treatment steps would be so that we could start treatment as soon as possible. So, he underwent an MRI brain and a CT abdomen pelvis, both of which did not show any other evidence of metastatic disease. So, he had stage 4A disease given this pleural effusion, but without other distant metastases. And then, guided by our oncology colleagues, we used the tissue that we had to try to identify a targetable driver mutation. So, some of these are EGFR, ALK, ROS1, BRAF. He didn't have any of those. And then these patients are always tested for PDL1 expression. And he actually had pretty low PDL1 expression. And that's very consistent with this kind of rapidly progressive extensive disease. So oncology decided to treat him with kind of the standard of care which is chemotherapy but interestingly and a big learning point I think for me was that this patient still got pembrolizumab and this is routinely used irrespective of the PDL1 expression and this is based on the keynote 189 trial which showed significant survival benefit regardless of the PDL1 expression.
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic point. We need to have a whole series of episodes about lung cancer and then the personalization. I'm sorry about that. And the personalization of care, but also the value of these immunotherapies, even without the receptors. It's, it, it's a fascinating topic. At least uh, we have the information you can get them on treatment and hopefully it responds. Katie, I know you've dedicated a lot of your career to implementing structures to catch lung cancers earlier than this. And Lauren, I know that this is a pa- subject you're passionate about and establishing your career in. So I was hoping to hear from both of you about lung cancer screening programs, how we can try to catch lung cancers earlier in patients and especially high-risk smokers like this.
4: Thanks. Early lung cancer detection is one of my favorite things to talk about. So just to talk a little bit about lung cancer screening, it's an annual CT scan that's done for patients aged 50 to 80 who are current smokers or former smokers that have quit within the last 15 years and people who have smoked at least 20 pack years. Now, both the Nelson and the NLST trials have shown a significant reduction in lung cancer mortality using CT screening, and that's why we recommend it for this group of patients. We implemented lung cancer screening at Boston Medical Center in 2015 using a multidisciplinary approach, and then in parallel, we launched a lung nodule clinic. To date, we've performed over 10,000 screening CAT scans, and we currently average about 200 to 225 screening CTs per month. For our program, compared to the NLST, our patients that are screened for lung cancer tend to be older. They are more likely to be current smokers. They tend to have a lower number of pack years, although still within the eligibility criteria. And our patients are much more racially and ethnically diverse than those participants in the randomized trials of lung cancer screening. For example, our patients at Boston Medical Center, about 35% of the patients receiving lung cancer screening are Black, whereas this proportion was around 4% in the national lung screening Trial. So, when you hear those numbers and those differences, it begins to raise the issue of disparities among cancer screening. And if it's okay, I want to pass it off to Lauren so she can talk about some of her really amazing work in that area.
1: Yes, please. Yeah.
2: Thanks, Katie. I think it's really impressive how many patients we've screened and to see the differences between our patient population and the trial populations. And this patient is just one of so many people as a resident and now for. a first-year pulmonary fellow that I met who were diagnosed without lung cancer screening. And in particular, this patient did identify as Black. And as Katie mentioned, significant racial disparities exist both in the screening for lung cancer and then in lung cancer treatment. And so that's really inspired me to pursue a career in addressing these health inequities. And I'm very lucky at BU to be supported both at BU and at VA Boston with an amazing mentorship team who I think is going to set me up for success to try to address some of these things. Just wanted to briefly mention some of the research that we're doing and it spans the continuum of lung cancer screening from how to identify patients. Really, the goal of identifying patients is who's going to benefit most from lung cancer screening, and there's still work to be done in that area, particularly around Black patients. There's Good data that shows that Black patients in particular are more likely to develop lung cancer at younger ages and with less pack year history. So very applicable to this case. And these patients are not currently being captured for lung cancer screening. So I'm involved in work at VA Boston looking at how we could maybe optimize how we choose patients for screening. And then some work that I'm particularly excited about at both both VA Boston and BMC is how we engage actual patients and community members to figure out how can we best do this work together. And that's really where this community-based participatory research comes from. And it's a really exciting kind of turn in clinical research where we actually turn to the experts, which are patients and community members, to tell us how to do this research and how to deliver care. And I'm just really lucky to be in an environment that's so supportive of this career path.
1: Yeah, that's truly amazing. I was at a conference yesterday and I heard from a colleague, Leo Celli, who made this quote, and it's attributed to a bunch of people, Don Berwick, Edward Deming. Paul battled in, but it says like every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And so the disparities that exist now are all from this trial that is 4%. It's amazing that you're addressing these disparities at systemic level. Very excited to see where your work ends up. And maybe you'll come back on the show and share it with us when you have some some further progress, which I know is inevitable.
2: And I think it's important too, to just recognize how national of an effort this is and how well supported we are from ATS. I'm actually Very excited to be attending the Health Disparities Symposium on Saturday, where I'll get to work with people from all over the country on this work. And it's definitely a national effort that I'm really excited to be a part of.
1: That's great. We were actually doing a recap of that symposium on the show with the the organizers. So Great. Yeah.
4: (laughs)
0: Yeah, so many exciting things to look forward to. And thank you, Lauren and Katie and Chris for sharing some great things about Boston University so far. Just the great clinical care, some things that you've highlighted or I think fellows being able to be part of the PERT team, which is so important in diagnosing acute PE and risk stratification and management. Katie, you shouted out the Alpha-1 Antitrypsin Center, which is amazing. And then the work that you and Warren are doing with lung cancer screening, as well as the follow-up in the nodule clinic. But we wanna hear more about Boston University and how great it is. So I'm wondering if each of you could tell us something unique that you enjoy working at Boston University and specifically the Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship. Lauren, I'll start with you. What do you want listeners to know today about BU?
2: Yeah, well, There's so many reasons. I, I clearly love BU. I've been here for six years and chose to stay on for Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship. And the number of reasons are too many to list, two of which are Chris and Katie, who I had the pleasure of working closely with in residency and now in fellowship. But I think overall, our faculty are really just amazing and the level of autonomy that we get as fellows to really develop our skills. But with that very supportive backup that makes us feel like we can always reach out for questions and As soon as I started fellowship, I immediately felt like a colleague and less of a trainee. And I think that really breeds this amazing culture of being able to work really well with our attendings.
0: That's awesome. It's so important as one goes through additional training. So Chris, I know that you may have some biases with your fellows, but I'm interested in hearing what you want to share about BU today.
3: I definitely love our fellows. They're wonderful people. And I think BU and Boston Medical Center is a very unique place for people to work and train. It's the largest academic safety net hospital in New England. And I think we have a very robust clinical and research program for all of our trainees. And the trainees, in fact, who are here, are committed to the mission of Boston Medical Center of providing exceptional care to the underserved. And it's you really go home at the end of the day feeling like you're helping people.
0: Yeah, so important for allowing us to keep doing what we do every day. Katie, what about you? Anything that you wanna share?
4: My favorite things about BU, BMC and the pulmonary center are my patients and the people that I work with. So faculty, fellows, and all of the staff. And I think that the lung cancer screening program is a really great example of how we bring all of that together. It was really through the support from BU and VMC and united efforts from people across the university and the hospital system that we were able to build this really incredible program to screen patients for lung cancer. And it's a program that's high volume, it's high quality, and it saves lives. And on top of that, it serves as a focal point for cutting-edge research like Lauren's doing.
1: That's amazing. Yeah, sounds like an unbelievable place to, to work and learn. It'll be easy on our road trip, Monty, because you'll come and visit. You can stay with me, and then we'll just go down the street. It'll be great.
0: <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we like to wrap up every episode with a one learning point that each person wants to, our listeners to remember. I'm going to start with something that you said early, Chris. When you have a smoker, any smoker of age, but a younger smoker, you're thinking about rare inflammatory diseases, if the disorder doesn't quite fit. You mentioned some ones that I think it's important for pulmonologists to know. Langerhans cell histiocytosis, respiratory bronchiolitis, acute eosinophilic pneumonia. We never want to anchor on a diagnosis, but if you've never heard of it, it's hard to make the diagnosis when it comes up. That's mine from the day. Monty?
0: Yeah, I think I just really love Chris and Katie's approach to thinking, looking at abnormal findings or kind of coming up with the differential is really... Come up with your differential first and then build in the patient data because that way you're going to make sure that you're not biased or miss anything. I know that's a simple thing to do, but sometimes we overlook or we miss if we're busy. So I just appreciated
2: them sharing that tip with
0: us again today.
1: Absolutely. Lauren?
4: Lauren?
2: Yeah, this case really helped me hone in on that question of the hypercoagulability workup. So thinking about those predisposing factors and the patient's age and things that might make it more likely, and particularly in this patient, I think despite the fact that they were not eligible for age-appropriate cancer screening, having malignancy high on the differential given his presentation with his VTEs.
1: Yeah, that's an important one for everyone to, to approach at some point. Katie?
4: My takeaway is to be sure to come up with a differential diagnosis for the CT imaging findings the same way that you would for a constellation of symptoms or a constellation of physical exam findings, and that even once you have a unifying diagnosis, to be sure to ask the question, why? So why does the patient have this diagnosis and why do they have it now?
1: Yeah. Thanks for reiterating. And I know Christina said it, but I think it's really important, especially in the age where we realize that even a one-liner makes you really biased, right? And can be biased in negative ways. It's important to have that unbiased approach. Chris?
3: I think my takeaway is the power of a careful physical examination. So the detection of that pleural rub and the supraclavicular adenopathy can definitely direct your diagnostic workup and your differential diagnosis. Take the time to examine your patients.
1: Absolutely. It's something for us always to remember. Thank you all so much for coming on the show. It was a wonderful Thank you all for joining us and listening. This episode was uh, written, edited and produced by myself, Christina Montemayor. Music is original music by Eric Rogers, and we'll see you in two weeks for our next
4: one.